Hello and welcome to Sex News with Ray. I'm your host, Ray, and today we're joined by Yona Sienna, my dear friend. Yona has a BA in Classics, which we now know what that means from the University of King's College in Halifax, where they were the vice president of the King's Pride Society. They teach Hebrew and Jewish topics both privately and through various synagogues in Toronto and have lectured on disability, mental health, and other topics. Yona is also a Jew for hire. Yona is currently on the programming committee of the LGBTQ+ at the Miles Adele JCC and will be taking Jewish studies at the graduate level this fall at the University of Cincinnati. If you need an ASL interpreter or a Jew for hire, call Yona. Hey, hey. They can't see your gestures. They can only hear your voice. Hey, hey. I'm putting two <laughs> fingers up. Which two? Today in sex news, the article is called What the Talmud Can Teach Us About Sex and Consent. It's from Tablet Mag from October 2018. Tablet Mag is another one of these progressive Jewish magazines that are online, although they do tend to publish a variety of opinions on a variety of subjects, from what I've noticed. They have their own podcast. But before we go into what this is, Yona, what is the Talmud? The Talmud is a collection of discussions between rabbis that happened over uh, a few hundred years from the beginning of the first century CE to the beginning of the third century, sort of it ended in 200 was when the Talmud was officially compiled. It's not like a book that one person sat down and wrote. It's kind of like the meeting minutes and spark notes of hundreds of thousands of different discussions that were happening in uh, in, in schools between rabbis and the debates they were having, the notes of which were recorded, and then other rabbis had debates about those notes. So at the end of the 200 years, we got these six different books in a series that addressed uh, topics as various as how do you celebrate Shabbat to what are the requirements if a lizard falls in my oven? Or how am I obligated to pleasure my wife? How am I obligated to pleasure my wife? Follow-up question. How is this different from the Midrash? So Midrash means any interpretation of a law or story. So the Talmud is a collection of Midrashim, but you can also find Midrashim in other works like Midrash Rabbah or other uh, other ones that have been written throughout the centuries. You can even make what's called modern midrash, where you make your own headcanon just entirely based on you. But that would be distinguished from like a rabbinic midrash from the Middle Ages. So when a rabbi in a service is doing the part where it's technically a sermon, but might not be a sermon, but it's like the parasha of the week and they do their their conversation around it, that would be like a modern midrash. That would be a midrash. Every time you give a Dvar Torah with your unique interpretation, that's your unique midrash. Thank you. That was the word I couldn't remember, Dvar Torah. Okay, I'll summarize the article. And once again, the title of it was the Tal- What the Talmud Can Teach Us About Sex and Consent. Keep in mind, the Talmud is from 200 CE at the latest. The rabbis gave us the tools to discuss consent as the issues that faced us in 2018, hashtag me too, were faced by people in the fifth century. A quote from the article says, not only is consent vital, defined here, 
as a resounding full-bodied yes, but the same texts speak of the importance of female pleasure, a female sexual initiation, and a female sexual satisfaction. These commentaries, however, aren't perfect. They are homophobic, xenophobic, sexist, and outright misogynist in waves. Yet this ancient conversation around consent remains groundbreaking and vital in our current cultural predicament. Underneath the pervasive problems around sexual violence in the United States right now is this very old Jewish blueprint for action. The author of this article contends that the rule Dina Vemalchuta Dina, the law, did I say that right? I think so. Okay. The law that says we are to listen to the law of the land where we live means we took on the puritanical sex values of North America, which is why we don't learn about this in school. But another facet of the law is that we can override these rules when the host culture and government threatens the spirituality of the people. The idea being here, I think, that it is our duty as Jewish people to be talking about consent. Uh, Then the last other notable thing from this article is when rape occurs in a biblical sense, the rabbis discuss it, including boundaries around touch, female pleasure, and traumatic scenes. When taught by the right rabbi, these can become vital teaching moments. All right. So let's talk about sex and consent in uh, the Talmud and the Torah. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have any clear examples aside from that one article that talks about how there are examples, but the rules of Ona and female sexual pleasure do talk about consent and the woman has to be consenting and willing it and want it. So when they talk about the man must pleasure his wife every single night, they don't mean that he has to go and rape her every night. They mean that if his wife wants sexual touch and pleasure, he's obligated to provide it. He can't brush her off. And the Torah is very clear that rape is uh, horrific and abhorrent. Yeah. And... Uh, there are several stories in the Torah that deal with the matter and they always paint uh, the perpetrators in a very negative light. So the uh, biggest example that people might know about is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This has been definitely twisted by some interpretations to be about homosexuality when it in fact is about rape. The residents of Sodom want to rape the guests of Abraham's uh, relative, I think it's his nephew, Lot. The Bible is quite clear that this is horrific, and for the sins that the people of the city are doing, the city is destroyed by God. I know that a lot of people will make a lot of modern-day comparisons to Sodom and Gomorrah, like Amsterdam is a modern Sodom and Gomorrah because you can buy pot there and hire sex workers. And Yeah, that's not what Sodom was. America's become a, a veritable den of iniquity, like Sodom and Gomorrah, you know. I think if you want to understand Sodom, you want to think of like Gotham City, maybe. Okay. It's a place where bad things happen because there's no accountability. And so it is a, just a den of horror. And instead of Batman, we have God. Instead of Batman, we have God. And... Daddy Dom come to save the day. Comes to save the day. This is non-consensual consensual relations, and I am going to put an end to it. Yeah, it's like when you're at Oasis and something not okay is happening and you enforce the rules and you kick them out of the club. Yeah. Uh, We don't murder people when they break our rules, though. I do want to point that out. (laughs) We are a place of law. We follow the laws of our country at Oasis, just like the Jews. The Bible definitely reflects that it was written 3,000 years ago at a time when the justice system was was more based on uh, capital punishment for certain crimes. The Bible has an issue as well which is that it is focused a lot on the honor of the family and specifically the male relatives of the woman whose consent has been violated. And it deals a lot more with the consent of the father 
to the pairing than the consent of the woman. These books were written by men, correct? Written by men, for men, mostly about men. Okay, continue. The, the crime of rape is very often about that the father was not, you know, did not give permission for this match to happen, regardless of, of the permission of the woman. And there are some victim blamey parts of it about whether she was yelling out for help. So it's, it's complicated for sure. But th- the least we can say is that it's seen as a negative thing for sure. And that the proper way that things should be is a loving, healthy, consensual relationship uh, between partners. One thing that I do think we should bring up is that the Torah, the Bible, can be misogynistic and patriarchal. And a lot of the times, I think when you and I discuss it, we we are choosing what pieces have value to us and what we can interpret and how we can read past the patriarchy. And I think a lot of people, when it comes to religion, they go, well, it's patriarchal, so let's throw the whole thing out. And to that, I would say, do you want to throw out Shakespeare? You know, if you've read The Taming of the Shrew, it is undeniably, unredeemably sexist nonsense. And that was the culture that Shakespeare was in, that he participated in, and that the values that he believed and similar values are justified in other parts of other plays as well. However, we choose to engage with Shakespeare by saying there are parts that are too beautiful to throw away without forgiving the parts that that we cannot accept anymore. And this goes back to interpretation. And I feel like there are people who think that some interpretations are valid, but maybe someone would see our interpretations and go, well, that's not valid. That's not Judaism. What do you say to that? I say that nobody can police your head canon. Nice. I really think that the metaphor of Midrash as uh, fan fiction or head canon is a very good one. But there are definitely things that we can say are mainstream Jewish practice or Jewish interpretation versus things that are not as mainstream. But I don't want to attach a value judgment to that. That's fair. One thing that we've discussed in the past, and I know that is a topic that you're always interested in, is how trans Jewish people engage with the Torah in positive ways. Yeah. So the the Torah and the Talmud are very interesting in how they grapple with ideas of sex and gender. The Talmud in particular reads through the Torah and sees places that uh, are either explicitly about gender differences or that the rabbis read as being about gender differences. And then they come to this discussion at one point that there aren't really two cut and dry genders or sexes. And they have a whole discussion where they define different categories of I would say, gender and sex outside the binary and try to define them in terms of, well, okay, which commandments do you follow? Do you follow the women's commandments or the men's commandments? And they go through several different categories. It is not uh, the rabbis being your woke bay fighting for non-binary recognition, but it is them grappling with the reality that the binary is not a perfect representation of reality. There are people who naturally have hormone balances or appearances that don't neatly fit into what we expect from the gender binary. The rabbis recognize that fact. And instead of just ignoring it and denying it, they they say, you know what, the two gender, two sex model doesn't perfectly fit the world. Let's try 
to go further. And I don't think they go far enough. I don't think they understand what we understand now about genetics and hormones and gender identity that have come from so many years of uh, scientific and sociological research and a lot of activism from the LGBT community. But I don't necessarily fault them for not having access to that knowledge. I, I think that we should look at their dissatisfaction with the binary and the fact that they were beginning this conversation thousands of years earlier than other people were, rather than just thinking that they reached the end of it. They didn't. They really just started the beginning of the conversation. But it's pretty amazing that even in the first and second centuries, there were people recognizing that there was something beyond the binary that we had to contend with. I think a lot of people think of religion as something that's controlling and confining. I think as a Jewish person, maybe, you know what, there were certain elements of the Jewish community that to me felt very controlling and confining. But when I left my suburban enclave, if you will, and went to other places and met other Jewish people, that's when I sort of realized like Judaism is actually a wonderful place that I feel connected to and that I can really find parts of myself expressed in. And the reason that I think I still practice as a Jewish person, whatever practice means to other people and whether or not they think it's valid doesn't matter because I love reading these ancient texts and being able to go, okay, well, if that was 2000 years ago, how do we read it today? And how do we reinterpret it today? And is this still useful to me? And I can, I find it as an act, someone who's maybe more academically inclined, a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, I think something that we had here in the notes, religion for the average Jew, the way that they apply that tool, it's not a hammer. It's a multi-tool. Do you want to elaborate? Yeah. It's not you know the saying, when you all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. It's not a one-size-fits-all, just bash the book against whatever problem you have, and you probably end up with a similar solution. It is very precise and very open-ended, and it speaks in many voices. In terms of the article talking about how the Talmud gives us a blueprint for dealing with modern day issues like consent or trans inclusion or any of these other hot topic, you know, I don't want to say political, but maybe social, socially political topics. What do you think of that idea? Especially considering that we just talked about how the text itself is still problematic and it's not perfect and it is patriarchal and it does say some pretty shitty things. So I think the Talmud gives us a blueprint for how to engage with a text that like Shakespeare has things of such great value while holding it accountable in a sense. The rabbis don't take the Torah at face value and the project of the Talmud tells us that we shouldn't take it at face value either. The Talmud says, turn it, turn it. Imagine the Torah as this multifaceted crystal that you should always be turning to find new facets, new things, new ways that the light can glint off it. If you don't like what the Torah is saying, you should keep reading because it probably says something entirely different a few pages later, or start looking at the commentaries and see how people are able to take something that on the surface seems really inapplicable to the modern day and realize that there's a way to read it that makes it so affirming. So an example that I'll give is 
what people use as the prohibition of homosexual sex. There's a verse in Leviticus, after talking about several other prohibited sex acts, like you, sh- you shall not have sex with an animal or with uh, a f- direct family member, so prohibiting bestiality and incest. It also mentions uh, a man shall not lie with a man as he lies with a woman. This is, and they say a word that basically means unkosher. So the surface reading would be like, oh, okay, like homosexual sex is an abomination. But uh, when you start looking into the interpretations of it, one of the things that comes up is that it's explicitly tagged as a issue of sacred cleanliness, not of morality. So it's the kind of thing of like, don't have gay sex on an altar. Like maybe that would make the altar, like if you do, you have to wipe it down. Don't have gay sex and then go lead your congregation in prayer directly after. Who knows, right? It could it could be it could be something like that. I've heard another interpretation that they use two different words for man. I don't know if this is true. This is just what I've heard. No, it's the same. It's the same because there's a lot of people who inter- like they reinterpret it as don't fuck children. Yeah. So a lot of people say that the issue that they're addressing, remember, everything in the Torah is some issue in society that they have to address, is they say that in the ancient world, we especially know this from ancient Greece, same-sex relationships were often between an older, more powerful man and a younger man who didn't have the power to to consent, didn't have the ability to consent. It was, t- have you seen Tiger King? I haven't seen Tiger King. It's the Tiger King and his straight young men that he basically coerces into relationships. There's this oh, one guy, it's his, it's his husband. You find out on episode like six or seven that his husband is straight, but he had drugs. And this man was a drug addict. That's terrible. So so people say that the Bible is prohibiting that. That to me seems definitely a bit like an abomination. So I can understand using that terminology. For me, I've chosen to headcanon it in a totally different way, which is I pick at the wording that it says, it's, you shall not have sex, you shall not lay with a man the way that you lay with a woman. And to me, that means when you have sex with someone, You shouldn't be pretending that there's someone else. Oh, that's smart. You should be sleeping with a man the way you sleep with a man. I, as a non-binary person, have felt very misgendered in sex. I felt people relating to me in a way that is not who I am. And they were just sort of like projecting their own fantasies onto me and not genuinely engaging with, with who I am and like what I am bringing. So I interpret it as saying, if you're going to lay with a person of any gender, recognizing their gender is a huge part of having sex that is sacred. This line is also where you get that, not misinterpretation, but the interpretation that any sex in Judaism is okay as long as it's not anal. (laughs) That's like a thing. Yeah. Oh, here's a fun story. I was having a conversation with someone from the Jewish community from one of my old jobs, and they were saying that when they took their Hatan classes, the rabbi said, you can do whatever you want in the context of your marriage, but not butt stuff. And that's coming from this line. And that's one interpretation of how people... You shall not lie with a man the way that you lie with a woman. Meaning you cannot do anal with your wife. That's a stretch. But that's what I'm saying. Like, that's how you lie as a gay man, and therefore it shouldn't be okay. So... There are so many different ways that people have taken this, like you can't be gay or you can do anything except anal or your headcanon, I think, is a lot more beautiful. It's less prohibitive. It's more about how do we want to do this in a way that feels healthy? 
I acknowledge that this was almost certainly not the original intent of the framers. This was not the original intent of when that text was written. But that doesn't matter because in the Talmud, there is a story where a bunch of rabbis are arguing about some particular interpretation of a particular law. And one of the rabbis says, if I am right, let the river reverse its course. And the river reverses its course. And the rest of the rabbis go, that's not a valid argument. Acts of nature don't count for something. Give us a real argument for why you're right. And so he goes again and he causes another miracle to happen. And finally, the rabbi who's outnumbered says, if I am right, let a voice from God, a voice from heaven declare that my position is correct. And sure enough, a booming voice from heaven goes, the law is in accordance with this rabbi. The rest of them quote the Bible to that voice. And the quote that they use is, Lo bashamayim hi. A quote that says, The law is not in heaven. It's on earth. It's been written. It's now for you to interpret. This is obviously a parable. Yeah, it's, it's a midrash. Yeah. It's a parable. Okay. But the message of the story is very clear. The text is central and... We don't accept voices from heaven. The text is it. We don't say that it's it's up in heaven anymore. Now it's been given to us and we're in partnership with it. And that's a huge metaphor in Judaism is God and Jews as in some strange way, equal partners. Like the idea that we as tiny piddly humans can be in partnership with what is bigger. Well, we are the chosen people. We are the chosen people. We are precious. And, and to go back to BDSM language, God is our master that we like idolize, but we are the sub that God cherishes. We are, we are precious and we are in some ways in an equal relationship. Even though there's a power dynamic, there's still equal footing. That's exactly it though. Uh, a dom and a sub, they are equal in the relationship, even with the dynamic. That's, this is so beautiful. And that's what lets me feel like I can reinterpret these texts because, you know, it's like if your dom says, listen, you have to do exactly what's in our contract, the letter of the law. Jews are the brats of all the religions. We are the bratty sub. And when we go, actually, like, this is what the text says. And it also says, lo bashamayim hi, like, it's not yeah. in heaven. It's just what's in this document. And then God is like, well, I can't punish you for that. But I'm using my words against me, I might anyway, because, you know. Because that's fun. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly, exactly it. Um, I just, I'm having feelings right now of just two Jews, three opinions, but like at the mm -hmm. rabbinical to yelling back at God level, but also just like now when people are like, why do you have a problem with authority? My response can be, it's the Jewish way. Yeah, it, it really is. So I'm going to take a, a quick, sharp turn into just a completely different subject than the text. Which is, uh, well, maybe it's actually still the text. Yona, I know that you have all these headcanons. I also know I that do. you have headcanons about biblical characters' sex positions and where you find them in the text. Tell me all about that. Give me a few. Okay. So uh, I think we'll talk about this later when we do the text study. But Adam is unfortunately a, a top. Okay. And he 
had a bad experience where he did not want to be pegged. Huh? So, and that's the whole Lilith Eve thing. Yeah, which we'll talk about next which time. Which is why but- Lilith is every single feminist Jewish person's, like, she's our, she's our idol. Not yeah. in, like, an idol-worshipping way, but, like, the story of Lilith is just, uh, love that woman. Yeah, we will talk about Lilith uh, when we get to the episode doing uh, actual okay. text study. Which is next episode, but yes, continue. Okay, so that's Adam. And Eve is, unfortunately, his his vanilla bottom. Mm. Not even a bottom. I feel like, yeah, just his vanilla partner. Adam was just not kinky. Can I give you my now headcanon? I really yes, see please. Eve as like, you know when you're in high school and you have that high school boyfriend, but then you get to university and you're like, oh my God, there's so many other options. Am I sure I want to be with this one? And you like get drunk at a frat party and kiss someone else. That's Eve. Okay. Okay. Like with the snake and the apple and. Oh yeah. Right. Adam crafted her, you know, in his, that whole, like she comes from his rib bullshit or whatever. So that she would be of him. So here's this guy who's like, you're nothing without me. And then she gets some freedom and she has this other person being like, are you sure you want to be with that guy? He's kind of controlling. So actually this is interesting because uh, firstly, the serpent before the curse, has uh, arms and legs. So, like, we can imagine our scaly... This is like the lizard person. Yeah, like anthropomorphized snake with arms and legs that is seducing her. I'm imagining the shape of water, the fish man. Yeah, totally. And the second thing is that there is a rabbinic midrash that after the incident in the Garden of Eden, Adam separated from Eve for 130 years because it says when he was 130, they had their kids. And they're like, wait, what happened for those years? So the idea is that like he separated from her. They broke up for a bit. He grew as a person. He came back. Yeah, he came back to her. But in the time in between, he had a lot of sex with a lot of spirits and created the demons. Demons are Adam's extra marital relations. Yeah, between Adam and spirits. So uh, Judaism doesn't believe in the Christian hell with the devil and the demons that are his servants. Judaism, in the Middle Ages at least, believes in demons that were part of God's creation here on earth. They're just sort of like invisible spookies. So goth. Okay, give me give me one or two more biblical character sex positions. What else you got? All right. For some reason, I get this vibe that Abraham was a discreet top. Okay. He was with his wife, but then like, he maybe had a thing with his servant, Eliezer. Mm, like a gay top, not like a straight top. Okay. Yeah, he was a he was a top for that, but like he wanted to be discreet about it. I think that Isaac is a bottom and a pillow princess, but because he has trauma about being restrained, he's vanilla only. Okay, I love it. Give me one more. Uh, Jacob is a verse switch with a wrestling kink. Mm, okay. I really feel like Leia ended up maybe with a cuckold fetish, almost. Oh, definitely. You had to. Leia takes takes Rachel's place, but then, you know, he's always truly in love with Rachel and, like, all that other stuff. And, like, I feel like Leia probably was like, I'm cool with this because I'm into it. This is my stepsister. Yeah. You know? There's a lot there. I have one for pretty much every biblical character, even if I don't have it like that I've thought of before, I'll think of it on the spot. So uh, listeners, send in questions about every biblical character you can think of. And I'll tell Ray my head canon for their sex positions. We'll do, we'll do an extra special episode maybe in season four where you come back just to 
address them since every single biblical character's sex life. I love it. What about Jesus? Just kidding. We're Jewish. Okay. So (laughs) my next question for you is where do we actually, we're talking about text. We're talking about blueprints. We're talking about sex positions. Where do we actually see sex in the Torah? We see a lot of, I mean, multiple wives and concubines. We've talked about Mm -hmm. that already. Concubines in Judaism are like, they're in the Torah everywhere, but you get the sense that Jewish women are people and concubines are just the extra sex buddies. I think we have to understand that in the ancient world, we didn't have the same system that we do now around surrogacy. Because now you can like make a financial transaction where someone will be a surrogate and you'll like deposit eggs and like have an egg donor and a surrogate and you'll be able to have children that way. But in the biblical world, the, the system I think was more the word that we've inherited from the King James Bible, concubine. But I sometimes use the word surrogate if I'm making my own translation to understand that it's a relationship between people who are having trouble conceiving and somebody else who's providing a service. Right. And if you as a woman are the property of a man or a husband and the ratios aren't necessarily 50-50 everywhere you go, then you're going to end up with certain amounts of people who get wives and don't. I've always been confused about that, but that's a whole tangent. Okay. We also have sex laws, laws around procreation, when you can procreate, laws around sex for pleasure. Also talking about how like it's a double mitzvah to have sex on the Sabbath without protection. It's a mitzvah to have sex on on Shabbat because you're not allowed to do any work. So what are you going to do all day? And the rabbis say it is a mitzvah to have sex. Yeah. Be fruitful and multiply and enjoy yourselves. You bored? It's fuck day. (laughs) Which I think is beautiful. I think everybody should set aside time in their relationship that is undistracted, where the work goes away, the phone goes away. Maybe you do it. Maybe you don't. But you have that time to really connect with your spouse. Yeah, what a lovely idea. No one's going to do it. Uh, Okay, so I've also noticed that there are no laws against sex work in the Torah, as far as I know. In fact, there's uh, a couple of episodes that involve uh, prostitution. The most famous one is Judah and Tamar, where Judah, you know, one of the 12 tribes, he's the son of Jacob, is forbidding his daughter-in-law from remarrying another one of his sons. So he has three sons and another woman has married one of them. The sons keep dying and she keeps remarrying their brothers. That was a tradition uh, back in those days. Right, because someone needs to protect her and keep her in the family and keep the kids in the family and keep the property in the family. Exactly. And we can say whatever we want about what we think about that tradition now, but that's how it was. When he forbids her from doing that, she goes to the side of the road, dresses up as a sex worker with a veil And Judah is walking there and buys her services. And then later, when she's pregnant, they're about to, like, stone her, I think. And then she reveals that she has his staff that he used as payment, as sort of credit, and that it was actually him. And there's this big, oh, okay, that's fine then. That's a confusing story. There's a lot going on there. Oh my god, that's confusing. But okay, good to know. So uh, the what the Bible feels about sex work is... They just acknowledge that it's a job people do. They acknowledge that sometimes, you know, that you, there's people on the side of the road uh, selling sex. And you're going to buy them. Yep. And sometimes people will buy them. Sorry, not buy them, buy the service. But Yeah. Okay, then I know that there's also apparently, I think you put this, you, you mentioned that there are laws around taking non-Jewish wives in the context of conquest, but there starts to be anti-intermarriage rhetoric after the Babylonian exile. Judaism went through a weird switch. It used to be that Judaism was 
all in the men's line of the family, where it didn't matter who the wife was. Uh, uh, we see Moses, for example, taking a non-Jewish wife, Zipporah, and they sort of say, well, we're just going to keep the wives in the family, and the man is the head of the house, so his kids are Jewish. Um, then the Jews get back from the Babylonian exile, and for the first time, there's this anxiety about assimilation. And in the context of the anxiety around assimilation, there start being laws around men taking Jewish wives specifically. Wait a minute. So all these people saying, oh, I don't count as Jewish because I'm only half Jewish on my dad's side. Yeah, that comes Total from bullshit. the rabbis of the Talmud redefining how someone is counted as Jewish or not Jewish. In the time of the Bible, the way that you were counted as an Israelite was obvious. Your family was Israelite. You lived in Israel. You knew who you were. Well, the, the easiest comparison is a lot of Israeli Jews are secular. Yeah, they, they're Israeli. That's who they are. Yeah, the diaspora tend to be the ones who are more observant. When the Babylonian exile starts and the Jews are, are suddenly... Well, it's actually the first time that we see the word Jew as a descriptor of a person's group before they were Israelites. Interesting. Then the people of the tribe of Judah are exiled to uh, Babylon. And while they're in Babylon, the people call them Judeans, Jews. Then they go back to Israel and they keep identifying as Jews. That sort of persists through the, the second diaspora, which is the current one. So the last thing that I know we have a lot of interesting rabbi rules about is menstruation. Menstruation. The rabbis were uncomfortable with bodily fluids in general. They're basically Woody Allen. Is Woody Allen uncomfortable with body fluids? I don't know, but he kind of, like, he comes off as, like, really neurotic about sex. Could be. Possibly. I want to explain Jewish purity laws in terms of trauma. And bear with me for a second. The Jews understood their relationship with God as one of partnership, where the Jews would follow the commandments, and God in turn would protect them from the more powerful nations around them, like Egypt and Assyria, and they would be allowed to stay as their nation in Israel. When the temple was destroyed and the Jews were sent into exile, there were two possibilities. Either God had broken his end of the promise, or we had broken ours. And there started to be a real sense of anxiety that perhaps we had not been following the rules well enough. And that was why God punished us with the exile. And so in response to that, a lot of laws that were less important in previous times suddenly became very central because people were scared that like, if we had only been better, if we had followed the laws of God better, then we wouldn't have been punished. And, and as the oppression got worse and worse over the centuries, there have been some streams of Judaism that have doubled down on that idea. I know that, that there are some people who say things similarly about the Holocaust, which is absolutely disgusting. When we talk about Orthodox Judaism, and especially ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Judaism, it is a product of the post-Holocaust response entirely. That level of observance did not exist in the old country, in Ashkenaz, in Poland, in Eastern Europe. That level of meticulousness is a response to, if only we could observe better, 
then this wouldn't have happened or this won't happen again. So there's a real anxiety and a real trauma response that has led to such a concern with purity. And and we have to understand it in that context. I think it is so interesting that when going through this list of laws around sex and relationships, it always comes back to not sex and not relationships. And I think that that's why I love talking about sex so much. The idea that when we're making choices about sex, we're also making choices about the rest of our lives. Sex is at the root of everything we do. So even in the Torah, you're seeing examples where they're making laws around who you marry, how you have sex, what is purity, what is ritual, what is this or that. And it always comes down to things that aren't sex, but also are. Because it's not like you close the bedroom door and suddenly you're a different person. What happens in the bedroom is you bring everything else to that. And it's not like you open it when you're done and it's like that never happened. You you bring both sides of yourself everywhere. I've noticed that people who do try and shut the door on the bedroom, metaphorically, and try and have like a dual dual lives, those people tend to be very unhappy. Or they find themselves doing things like I have seen Orthodox Jews at Oasis. I have a friend who used to work in one of those uh, massage parlors with happy endings. And a lot of her clients were Orthodox Jews. So when you try and restrict yourself into a strict order of life and try and separate those things behind a door and you try and devoid the rest of your life from sexuality and you try and divorce them from each other, your brain doesn't like that because it's so inherent in everything we do. And even at the beginning of the Torah, it talks about how sexual pleasure is like needing sexual pleasure and needing sex is like needing water and food. So trying to cut yourself off from that is just not healthy. And you know what? Let's give the Torah and the Talmud credit for including sex, sexuality, and all these other things as part of the discussion. So the Talmud considers uh, laws to do with sex and laws to do with purity and menstruation and, and bodily fluids as part of all their other discussions. They don't shut that bedroom door and keep them totally cut off from each other. They recognize that how you celebrate Shabbat is connected to how you connect with your wife. And how or you, husband or partner. We say wife a lot because specifically the language it was of the written, Torah. Yeah. It was written by men for men. So yep. in that context, that's what they were saying. But as we read it as modern Jews, we can say how you connect with your partner. I feel like that's a good note to go into a little commercial break. What do you think? Let's do it. Do you want to join the deviants to finding elite and actually tell people about it? Are you, like me, a fuck demon? We are launching Sex News with Ray Swag with these common phrases. We've got hats. We've got toots. That's beanies for you Americans. We've got sweatshirts. We've got crop tops. And as usual, all the art was designed by me, so it definitely has my personal flair to it. Check out the new designs at sharewithray.com slash merch slash SNWR and pick up a piece to support the podcast today. And we're back. Cloud writes, what does Judaism say about toys? I remember my dad saying that in religious homes, if the man doesn't satisfy his wife, she can technically leave him. Yeah, she definitely can. There are grounds for divorce in Judaism. I believe earlier we discussed the rules of onan sexual pleasure, and that's where the root of that comes from. I do want to say that patriarchy does get in the way. And so it's not even that the woman can divorce him, but you see it written as the man should be compelled to divorce his wife and free her. So Mm. even in Orthodox Judaism, there's something called a get, and the woman has to like get her husband to sign off on the divorce. That's that's part of it. Um, So 
it's been modernly interpreted to be a woman can leave her husband if he doesn't satisfy her sexually. But I really feel like the question at its root is talking about Judaism and sex toys. Yeah. So sex toys are a very modern thing. There have been dildos forever, but all of these battery-operated, app-controlled vibrators... The oldest dildo was made from, like, solidified or petrified camel dung or, like, some sort of, like, oh, something really? like that. There's, like, leather ones dating from 10,000 uh, BCE. Dildos are very old, but the modern sex toy is from the 1800s. And, you know, the, the sex toys that we think of, you know, like the magic wand, those are things from, you know, the 20th century. So Judaism spent most of, you know, most of the texts of Judaism are from the Middle Ages or earlier. So they don't say much about toys. In fact, I can't think of anything that they they say on the topic. What we can infer, though, is that if you're following the rules of you must pleasure your wife, if your wife would like a toy, then there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, according to that one rabbi, everything's fine as long as it's not anal. I think if you are an observant, like, Orthodox Jew, there might be an issue with using electricity. On the Sabbath. Yeah, on, on Shabbat. So if you are observing the mitzvah to fuck on Shabbat, uh, you might want to stick to the toys that are not elected. You don't have to press a button to turn them on. There was a very funny short film made recently, and it's liter- it's called Shabbos Goy, and it's about an Orthodox Jewish woman. The kids are all at the house, or modern Orthodox. The kids are all at the house, and one of them gets into her secret bin under the bed, and her vibrator is on, on the Sabbath. So it's her trying to run and find a Shabbos Goy who <laughs> can turn come and turn off. off her vibrator. And it's very funny. Like it's, Ray, and she's at, yeah? what's a Shabbos Goy? Oh, a Shabbos Goy is a loophole. Um, Shabbos meaning Shabbat and Goy meaning non-Jewish person. I mean, my grandparents apparently had one of these people. But if you can't use technology on the Sabbath because you must be resting according to these arbitrary rules and you you can't rip your own toilet paper, but you still need to, you know, feed everyone for dinner, the loophole people came up with, well, it's not against the rules for a non-Jewish person to do those things. So this non-Jewish person who would not get paid on the Sabbath, but be paid in general, would just be there. And you could walk into a room and say things like, it's dark in here. And all of a sudden, the lights would come on because the Shabbos Goy would turn them on. Or You can't ask them to do it explicitly. No, like, oh man, I'm getting hungry. That turkey should be, you know, the oven should be preheated to 350 if I want a tur- <laughs> if I wanted a turkey for 6 p.m., you know. So a Shabbos Goy is, is a loophole. And the question there becomes, are you really following the day of rest? At that point, shouldn't you just get takeout and pay for it? Things like that. So that's sort of the Shabbos Goy. I may or may not have made my husband a shirt that says Shabbos Goy that he wears to family Shabbat that's dinners. beautiful. Uh, he thinks it's hilarious. I also use it as a towel to dry my hair with because you're supposed to dry your hair in a t-shirt. Let's also address something very important. Goy is not a slur. Shiksa is, but Goy is not. Yeah. Uh, shiksa means unclean. And loosely translates to slut, but also is used to refer to a non-Jewish woman. Yeah, it just means unclean. So it's it's been used uh, in a sex slut-shaming way and has been used uh, against non-Jews, but it's not a nice thing to say. Goy literally means person from another nation. Goy means nation or, or community. So if you call someone a goy, it means they're from a community. That's not the Jewish one. Uh, I understand that it has taken negative connotations um, for some people, but it's very important to say that the, the history of that word, the etymology of that word is a very neutral one, the way that I think every group has words for people not in that group. Oh, just a general term for you're not in the group. You're a different group. I love the word slut, and I'll call my friends a bunch of big perverted sluts. 
But if a man on the street were to yell, you slut at me, or I were to yell at a random man, you pervert, it would be pejorative. But when we yeah. use it with each other, it's not pejorative. So some people, I think, started to use goy as a pejorative in those communities coming from the idea, like post-Holocaust fears and othering. And Yeah, but it's also uh, very important to understand that Jews have been the oppressed people, the nationless oppressed people. And when they're talking about the nations, the goyim, it's a relationship of marginalized to in power. So if it's taken those negative connotations, it's connected to to that. Yeah. So back to the idea of Judaism about toys. Nothing in the Torah. Most rabbis, I think, are fine with it. As Yona said, if you're Orthodox, don't use something electronically powered on the Sabbath. And I think really what Jewish sex comes down to is about pleasure. So if you're going to find pleasure, there's nothing wrong with it. There's a concept in the Talmud called Hidur Mitzvah, which is that a mitzvah can be enhanced. For example, when you say the blessing over wine, having a beautiful cup that you put the wine in is enhancing the mitzvah. So I would argue that just like using a special kiddush cup that you say the blessing for wine with makes the mitzvah of blessing the wine it sort of elevates it. You could elevate the mitzvah of having sex and especially having sex on Shabbat by using sex toys. That would be hidur mitzvah. That's my opinion. I don't have the Jewish value Hebrew words, but I would say that if we know that 80% of women only orgasm from clitoral stimulation and your dick can't vibrate. And a lot of people do think that some of the ways that women are getting off on internal simulation does have to do with the internal vibrations of the internal wings of the clitoris. I'm word salading. But the idea here being that if you know statistically that your female partner is only going to come from clitoral stimulation, then if you're obligated to pleasure this person and the toy is the way that's going to get it there, then I would say you're obligated to use a toy to use Jewish words. There's your answer. Jewish math right there. And I also think that's true for men. So once again, a lot of these rules are about men to their wives. But I do think that when you look at the text, if you look at the root of what they're trying to get to, it's that sex should be pleasurable and fun and intimate. And if toys are going to add to the intimacy of you and your partner, then that's a Jewish thing to do. I want to say that it's very important to understand that the Talmud is a conversation. It is a conversation with all of the issues brought up in the Torah and other parts of the Jewish Bible. And it is, I would say, a mitzvah to continue that conversation. The conversation did not end with the Talmud. It did not end in the Middle Ages. So if you are engaging with the Torah and the Talmud and other Jewish ideas and applying them to the modern day, making your own midrash, you are part of this 3,000-year conversation. And that is beautiful. Thank you for listening, everyone. Yona, where can people contact or follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at Yona Sienna. You can follow the podcast at Sex News with Ray on Facebook and Instagram and submit a listener question through sharewithray.com slash podcast or email sexnewswithray at gmail.com. Send us a voice memo, send us an email, send me a DM. I don't really care. We like all of them. Follow me at WifeBayRay on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Follow Razor Latex on Instagram and OnlyFans. The podcast is engineered and produced by Dave Meisner and is hosted at sexnewswithray.podbean.com. Theme music is by Blank and Brilliant. Special thank you to Blue Microphones and photography for our logo is by Dolly Shots Photography.